Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there, and also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back. I am here with a special bonus episode of Living Through It with the fabulous Allison Gill of the Daily Beans. We're actually making this a joint episode and we're discussing all things related to the election as well as legal developments over the past week including the fact that Trump's tax returns are now being sent to the House Ways and Means Committee. Let's see what they do with that during the lame duck session. In any event, I'm really excited to offer this up to you. It's a little bit of a different style from what we usually do here at Living Through It. This is really Allison and I talking in conversation with a little bit more of an interview style of Allison in my direction. But I hope you all enjoy it as a bonus episode here, and I will see you all back next week when our guest is the incredible Representative Joaquin Castro. Hope to see you then. Thanks so much. Hi, Elizabeth. Hey, it's good to be with you again, as always. And also to have you on the shared feed because we're putting it up both places. So it's great. We get to do this like in tandem. Yes, it's going to be awesome. And uh, and everyone uh, rightfully will get a day off. Our producers and our editors and everything will get, an, yes. will get a very well-earned couple of days off and the whole weekend. So I'm very excited about that. So I wanted to talk to you today because I know we, we discussed that, you know, we were going to jump on this call and uh, record a podcast about what happened in the midterm elections. But we can also talk about some other things that are going on. There's some really great news today. The 11th Circuit handed Trump his ass today in court. Uh, I think we'll get a decision mooting the entire special master. We also have the Supreme Court voting unanimously Mm -hmm. to hand his tax returns over to the House Ways and Means Committee, something they've been working on for at least three years, three and a half years now. And uh, it's just been a really bad, no good day uh, for Donald Trump. And so uh, we could talk about some of those things, too. But I wanted to get your top line thoughts about what we were able to achieve and some of the things we didn't do so well in this recent midterm election. Yeah, I have to tell you, um, you know, I'm I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic today than I was even yesterday morning because uh, we've got Joaquin Castro, as you know, coming up on the Living Through It podcast next week. And uh, without giving away too much, we he and I had a very specific conversation about what the House is likely to look like under Republican leadership this time around. And I think it's actually, you know, I think it's better than we think. I think there there is some scandal brewing right now. It looks like there's at least five Republicans who may not vote for McCarthy as speaker, which means he may not make it. And that's going to mean certain things for the deals that he's already had to cut in service of his own ambition. Um, but it's such a slim margin that it makes things a lot more mobile 
than they have been historically. And so while I was disappointed to see Bobert win again by such a slim margin, I certainly was disappointed by the state of play in the New York Democratic Party. And that's a whole fallout that I think is going to be front and center in that state for the next two years at least. But I think that uh, we've actually got some advantages to the narrowness of this majority that I think bode well. And, you know, certainly Representative Castro seems to think so as well, that there are advantages to not having everybody being willing to line up behind the far right wing of the Republican Party. The slimness of the majority means there may be an opportunity for a lot more cross aisle collaboration than might have been possible under prior speakerships, whoever ends up being the speaker. And so that I'm feeling actually pretty good about, better about it than I was even yesterday morning. Mm. And, you know, I'm not convinced at this point after what we've seen today that McCarthy's even going to be the speaker. And that also brings me greater hope. (laughs) I thought you were going to say great joy, but yes, also great hope. Well, great joy also, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, whoever it could be could be also a shit show. Mm -hmm. Though I think the Dems were floating the idea of nominating Liz Cheney. Yes. which would be really pretty hilarious. Just just the act of doing so, I think, would be fun. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I think, and also, you know, first of all, talking to Joaquin Castro always lifts my spirits and yes. my hope. Same with Malcolm Kenyatta, who you recently had on Living Through It, who said that hope and courage are renewable resources when he spoke to you in that interview. I feel like we really were able to preserve democracy in this election and that we denied any big lie supporter MAGA Trumpers access to secretary of state's offices in swing states, access to attorneys general offices. We flipped a lot of state houses, which will come in handy if the Supreme Court decides that state legislatures get to just choose whoever their electors are. So I think that'll come in handy. We flipped some governor seats. I mean, I think we did really well for democracy, even though we might have not done so well for Democrats, at least in the House. And we have this opportunity. But before we get over to the Senate, let's talk about those deals that you brought up that McCarthy might have had to make because he had like a two hour long meeting with Marge. And, uh, I, you know, I'm sure there were, I promise you can be in charge of this House Judiciary. I promise you can be, or House Oversight, whatever it is. I promise to let you do this if you just back me for speaker. And she came out pretty vocally to back McCarthy for speaker, which means he must have promised her a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think there was some reporting yesterday that there had been a guarantee that she would be allowed to investigate the Biden family at bare minimum and the Department of Justice and its actions against Trump. That, you know, that's disturbing. And, you know, certainly I think that the willingness to make a deal like that in the face of these election results is is pretty ballsy (laughs) on his part. And I don't mean that in a good way. I mean, you know, one of the things that everybody is very clearly observing is that there was no red wave, that very clearly the electorate has lost patience with some of the kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, psychotic behavior by the far right with regard to Hunter Biden's laptop and, uh, you know, these various accusations about what was underway in the DOJ with regard to Trump's theft of government documents. And so, you know, I kind of wonder, and Representative Castro and I talked about this a little bit too, whether or not this is actually going to backfire on the Republicans in the long run, right? Because 
one of the things that has to be clear right now, and that I think is actually sort of the obligation of people like you and I and other organizers and commentators to point out, is that when you're investigating the son of the president who has never held public office for things that arguably could have been on his laptop that we all know actually aren't, and you know, putting out information about his past addiction, what you're not doing is actually governing. What you're not doing is making policy. You're not actually doing anything to make the lives of American people better. You're not solving any of the primary concerns that so many Americans are facing, right? Investigating Hunter Biden's laptop doesn't deal with issues of inflation. It doesn't deal with a housing crisis. And that was their whole message leading up to the midterms, right? Right. And crime, which seems to have magically disappeared since (laughs) November 8th, right? You know, I think that I think we've also got to look at it through the lens of these deals being cut in a way that that is going to be more of what the electorate has already rejected. And so in a sort of, in a weird kind of way, I, I I may not mind it so much, provided that we don't get distracted and wrapped up in the drama of it, which is, of course, the point. I don't know. I'm, I'm really interested to see how this plays out, because I will also just say that I don't think that the wing of the party that doesn't support the, this sort of thing is going to have a lot of patience for it. Uh, you know, those committees are not just going to be made up of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, who says he won't vote for McCarthy and figures along those lines. There's going to be other folks on there who who have clearly seen that aligning themselves with Trump and, you know, the far right wing of the party is not a winning choice. Yeah. And they've all sort of admitted that. I mean, Murdoch is like a full going to get on like even Newsmax is like, nope, Trump is poison. Box office poison. I keep thinking of Mommy Dearest. <laughs> It's like a win-win for us, really, because if they keep up these shenanigans that voters voted against in the midterms, that's going to be bad for the GOP in 2024. And if they go a more bipartisan route, that's going to be good for democracy and Democrats in 2024. So they're sort of stuck between a a dildo shop and a crematorium, as it were, if we... So to speak. If we want to go back... Four seasons total landscaping for the win. (laughs) (laughs) Always always take, take the opportunity to use that reference when I can. But I also want to drill down on something you brought up, and that was the very narrow loss, hundreds of votes, uh, Lauren Boebert in Colorado's third district, because she won that district by six points handily in 2020. And I think that whether she runs again or whether a Republican comes in and primaries her and says, look, we got to get rid of her. She almost lost us this, you know, red seat uh, with her, you know, with her idiocy. And particularly, I think the messaging for Democrats on that side will be what happened, what we what we just saw happen at Club Q and the the violent threats and and mass shootings uh, against the LGBTQ plus community, which she just it's a straight line from her rhetoric to that. So I'm wondering how you think that might play out in 2024, because I I think our listeners know, but everybody, you know, remember every single two years, you got to run for your seat again in the House. So how do you think that's going to look? Well, I think there are some really interesting trends that we have to pay attention to right now, because there are these districts that were very hard red, for lack of a better way of putting it, where the needle has moved significantly from 2016 to 2018 to 2020 and now. And indeed, you know, for instance, another example of this is the governorship in Texas, where gradually, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of people are really upset about the fact that Beto lost and justifiably so, the number of uh rather the percentage of victory in Texas of the Republicans over Democratic candidates is declining and declining by substantial amounts. Like we're talking like five to 7%. 
in every election. So, you know, one of the things that I think we have to consider here is that, you know, when when Republicans are that that much risk in a district that they thought was safe, the question becomes, is the rhetoric, at, such as you've described, against the LGBTQ community, against trans kids, against immigrants who are fleeing violence, right? It is, is the rhetoric going to change? Um, and, and I think, again, part of our work has to be to also recognize that words are one thing and policy is another. And, you know, one of the things that I'm, of course, deeply suspicious about, given what we saw heading into the midterms, is the way in which some of these hard right anti-abortion candidates suddenly scrubbed their anti-abortion messages from their websites because they knew that the message wasn't selling. And so I do think we've got to be really clear on the fact that even where the needle is declining, we have candidates that are willing to hide their true intent in order to get reelected from the GOP. And also that we may see the messaging shift and that should not stop us. We should not allow ourselves and the people that we're organizing to believe fundamentally that that indicates a real change on the part of the GOP because democracy hasn't been saved. We made a really big dent in the direction of saving it in this election, but we're never going to get to be complacent. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that, um, you know, we've got to win back the House in 2024 and we've got to win the presidency because we still are in a place where Absent the passage of the Freedom to Vote Act, absent the passage of the Women's Health Protection Act, absent the passage of a real preservation act for gay marriage and for Griswold and for anti-sodomy protections, we're we're going to be back in the same boat. And so, you know, the again, I really think we've got to be clear that they will move because they're squirrely on the way in which they describe it. And the story isn't over until we win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's why we need to keep them tied mm-hmm. and with a cord of steel for all of history to the MAGA movement, because that's who they became. That's who they kowtowed to. That is the messages. They, that's the message they accepted and ran with to get their primaries, you know, to mm-hmm. get their primaries in order. And then, like you said, scrubbed everything and tried to walk a fine line. And uh, what's interesting is Democrats used to kind of do that, but they really don't anymore. Now we're more the democracy rights freedom party. It's a very interesting shift. And one that we're going to definitely have to pay attention to with guests like, that you've had on your show, like Anat, right? Yeah, she's coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I I think that the messaging point is really key here because one of the things I'll just say, by the way, as we watch the implosion of Twitter, that is really challenging to me is watching how many people just instantly snapped to regurgitating fascist talking points mm-hmm. instead of doing all the things that we supposedly learned heading into the midterms from people like Anand Giridharadas and from people like Anat Shankar Osorio about how the way that we win is by pointing out the flaws and then also reminding people of what we stand for. And I think one of the dangers right now is that we're all in that cycle of outrage. And it's really easy when we see Elon Musk tweeting out rape culture memes to be like, oh my God, it's so horrifying. I have to retweet it and share my horror instead of actually committing to being like, we we don't stand for this. What we actually stand for is X. And that's the place that we're aiming for. So I think um, I think the messaging point is key. And part of that has to be effort on every individual who's out there who cares about democracy to regulate yourself and not just regurgitate garbage. We actually have to make principled decisions about how we're going to convey what we stand for and what we don't stand for. You know, pointing out 
fascism where it lives is a key part of this. But we also have to do the other thing, which is to say, here's the big, bold, bright future of what this country could be if we step into true representative democracy. And, you know, I think we I think we dropped the ball because Elon Elon issued the invitation and too many of us said, yes, thank you. More, please. <laughs> yeah. And I'm really looking forward to that conversation with Anasha and Karasario when you when you speak to her on the podcast called Living Through It. We're talking with Elizabeth Cronize McLaughlin. I'm Allison Gill. We have to take a really quick break, but we will be right back after this. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. Elizabeth, hello. Hello again. Hello. So some really amazing things happened today. This could go down. We, You know, we see... These things seem to come in waves. The justice seems to come in groups, right? It's almost Gestaltian, right? I'm almost like, should I read Goloresh or Bach again? Because something's has, there's synchronicity happening in the universe, and I'm, I love it. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. But today, three major things happened, and that includes the Supreme Court voting unanimously to, to say, no, Trump, we're not going to stop your tax returns from going to the House Ways and Means Committee. And we'll talk about that. Uh, Lindsey Graham. Yes. testified for two hours today and put out a statement that he answered their questions and he's not going to talk about it. In front it. of the Fulton County DA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Georgia. After fighting a battle to not have to do it for a while. And then we had a hearing in the 11th Circuit with uh, somebody from the Solicitor General's office, Joshi, and uh, Jim Trusty arguing in the documents case for Mar-a-Lago because, as we know, the Department of Justice has filed to moot the appointment or vacate the order that appointed a special master from Trump Judge Eileen Cannon, which he shopped for. And it did not go well for the Jim Trusty uh, today. It was kind of embarrassing and sad. It was mostly Joshi and the judges talking about whether or not it's a vacate or, a, you know, recall and remand or remand and reverse and remand, yes. reverse and remand. So if we get rid of it, you know, they weren't even talking about should we get rid of it? They were talking about how we get rid of it. And I thought that that was one of my favorite things. So talk to me a little bit. Let's talk, first of all, about the SCOTUS thing. A lot of people, every time we go into these these kinds of little hearings or decisions that the uh, SCOTUS has to make with regard to the Trump investigations and the testimony and litigations, whether it's Fulton County, New York or in in the DOJ, Everyone's very worried that his handpicked Supreme Court is going to rule in his favor. But don't you think it's more that he was their tool to get put there to overturn Roe and overturn contraception and do their weird white nationalist Christian thing? And they actually don't give a shit about him. Uh, Yeah, I do think that's part of it. But I will also say that the thing I think about whenever it comes to any of these cases about the the arguable executive privilege stuff um, or the the arguments that he has made about how you know, because he was once the president and is the former president, he has privilege over every single thing that exists in the universe by magic telepathy. The thing I think about is the way in which judges and justices consider what that would look like if there was a democratic president making the same argument. And I have always been a little bit less concerned about the Supreme Court upholding Trump's arguments in this regard than I have been about the rollback of rights. I mean, and yes, your points are very well taken about the sort of like white Christian nationalist agenda uh, and the appointment of people like Amy Coney Barrett purely to just overturn Roe versus Wade. I think that's absolutely accurate, which is one of the reasons why I'm so much in favor of court expansion, by the way. But, you know, the, <laughs> the, the flip side of it is that when it comes to things like 
executive privilege and investigatory process privileges and things that may arise that have a larger impact on the way in which the executive branch functions. You can't be a judge or a justice or even a prosecutor looking at those questions without looking at them from all sides of the fence. And so in some sense, while I think it this this is great that you know we did have a 9-0 decision, it's also in some sense a no-brainer because if you don't want Joe Biden to be able to claim whatever you believe that he's got privilege over everything in humanity that he decides should be privileged, you're not going to rule in favor of Trump in the same position because precedent is precedent, right? But the but the unitary the unitary executive theory is also kind of scary, right? On the flip side of that. Yes. And, you know, frankly, Alito has been out there previously, long before Trump saying that he was in favor of a unitary executive theory. Uh, You know, I have advocated previously that that's one of the reasons why we should have tested the executive order power with things like allowing abortions on every military base in the country and things like that. Because if Alito has stood for the unitary executive theory, which is basically the theory that the president can do what he wants within the realm of the executive branch. There's no reason to tr- to not try to push the envelope on that. And granted, I came from a litigation position where, you know, and did cases where the whole point was to push the, the legal envelope to see what would stand. You know, activist litigation is a thing. Um, and sometimes it's done very effectively through test cases and the like. But I do think that my suspicion is that the conservative justices had a very different reason for ruling the way that they ruled today than, say, Kagan and Sotomayor and Justice Jackson. You know, I think we're we're in a situation here where we have to understand that the larger aims have not changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't have any expectation going forward that if contraception is challenged as a human right, you know, if Griswold is is challenged through a test case that we're not going to get the same sort of result that we got in Dobbs. But I do think here in this unique posture, it's actually not all that shocking. I'm happy with the result, but it's not all that shocking. And my big question right now is whether or not House Ways and Means is actually going to do what they should be doing, what the entire Congress should be doing during this lame duck window and moving the needle. Because let's not forget, there's a whole new House Ways and Means Committee come the first week in January. And they don't have to do anything with like this material if they're under Republican leadership. They can just jettison the whole thing and forget about it. So I hope the lame duck becomes um, an opportunity to actually do with these tax returns what we've been waiting to be done with them uh, over the last three years. Yeah. And what I'd like to see is for them to look at them and formulate the fact that the presidential tax audit program didn't work and hand it over to the Senate committee that could then develop a law to fix this under Democratic rule. And that's another reason we need that 51st seat. And uh, and that now is a, as good a time as any to talk about that, because there is a miles of difference between 50 and 51. Can you talk about some of those differences? Because there are many, and that's one of them. Yeah. I mean, the committee set up to me is the biggest issue, because when you've got a 51 majority versus 50-50, you actually get to move things through committee at a much more rapid pace. Um, there are certain procedural mechanisms that are required when we're at 50-50 that require the the involvement of the vice president to tie break in a much more frequent way than what we would see if it was like a 50-50 full-blown vote on the floor of the Senate. So it does make a really big difference in that regard. It also makes a really big difference in terms of how the committees just function generally. And so a lot of people are like, oh, we don't, you know, well, we did see not a lot. 
We saw a few people say after the actual election results in the Senate came out, oh, we don't even need Georgia. And by the way, Georgia needs Warnock. Like, let's not forget we have a, we have people living in Georgia who need yeah. that representation. And we need that blue seat in 2024 because that is a not a friendly map for Democrats. Let's lock right. it in. And and yeah, but you're right. It's the what what it boils down to is the people of Georgia need Warnock representing them, not Herschel Walker. Right. But yeah, the, the committee structure, you don't have to dick with Mitch McConnell on a power yep. sharing agreement, which he can filibuster for months like he did in 2020. I feel like either people weren't aware of that or or have forgotten. But it, it's a it's a big pain, right? Yeah, it really is. And I think that, uh, you know, we also need to be in a position where we're pushing forward the judicial nominations as fast as humanly possible. Because even though I will say the thing about the 11th Circuit today is that's that's a three judge Trump appointed panel. So it makes it all the more kind of strange that it went the way that it went today from the perspective of, of how things go. But, you know, let's not forget that, you know, the, the judges that were appointed by Trump were the least diverse judges in a generation that they are lifetime appointments. And, you know, we've got fantastic candidates. Biden's candidates have been, you know, record-breaking from the standpoint of the diversity of the slate. And, you know, we need to get as many of Biden's nominees appointed to the judicial bench as possible in the next two years. Because the other thing I'll just remind everybody of, and Ellie Mistel said this when I interviewed him on Living Through It, if we don't have the judiciary, we've got nothing. You know, you can pass the Women's Health Protection Act. And if you put it in front of a slate of judges that on a circuit bench, all of whom believe that abortion is not a human right, you're going to lose. Right. You know, we have to make we have to understand that the three branches of government all have to work together and making sure that we have the judiciary. And by the way, the expansion of the Supreme Court, which I really wish we would consider is going to make all the difference to having a democracy that actually thrives and functions for all of us and not just a certain lauded few. Yeah. And and we wouldn't have even been at the 11th Circuit arguing today if it weren't for a Trump appointed judge named Eileen Cannon. Yeah, we wouldn't have even had them to make their decisions for the wrong reason in our favor <laughs> if it weren't for her, you know, absolutely ridiculous order ignoring what subject matter or equitable jurisdiction is and just making decisions just either unqualified or in the pocket or both. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And yeah, when I talked to Ellie, when when I interviewed him for his book, Allow Me to Retort, that was one of the main points. And there are ways to expand. There are ways to put term limits on the Supreme Court without a constitutional amendment. There's ways to challenge these, you know, the overturning of Dobbs in court. There's there's yep. very creative ways to do that. And we, if we don't have the judiciary, they're just going to gut everything that we do. And so let's talk about uh, let's talk about Lindsey Graham, because he he testified for two hours at the Fulton County DA today. And, you know, there's, I think, seven ongoing criminal investigations into Donald right now. Mm -hmm. And this is the one that I think is in the lead if there's a race. If, if this were a horse race. I think this is the one that's in the lead, and it is the one that I personally have the most faith in, because Fonnie Willis is no nonsense. She did a huge RICO case in the, uh, you know, for school officials, administrators cheating on tests to get their numbers up and stuff like that. She she got them all. They all went to prison or at least were convicted. So talk a little bit about your thoughts about the Fulton County DA's investigation, which is probably, you know, kind of on the down low until the Georgia Senate runoff is is done. But, you know, she got Kemp in there and she got Lindsey Graham today. And apparently he answered all the questions. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of hers. I've been a huge fan of hers for the last two years. You know, I remember the first time that Rachel Maddow interviewed her and she's so no nonsense. Right. And she's also somebody who is not, um, and there are, there are prosecutors for whom this is not the case. She doesn't strike me as somebody who's very interested in the spotlight. She's there for the sake of justice and is really doing the work. And I think that's one of the reasons why we haven't heard a lot of details. There haven't been a lot of leaks about what's been coming out about this, notwithstanding the fact that there have been challenges to the subpoenas that she's issued, including by Lindsey Graham. Now, what I will say about this is that I have always thought that this was an extremely cut and dried case. There's tape, you know, this is kind of a no brainer, right? You know, like you if you Donald, read the statute, it's written for this crime. <laughs> like, right, exactly, exactly. And you hear him on the audio saying, you, you know, he needs the 11,000 some odd votes. Find me the 11,000 some odd votes. It's very, very clear what happened there. And, you know, Lindsey Graham's involvement which from what we know was also about placing calls to Raffensperger and other Georgia officials. And potentially, by the way, let's not forget this. He was involved in potentially making phone calls to officials elsewhere. So there are layers here of his potential criminal liability that may be included in this and depending on what the evidence looks like. And, you know, frankly, I think he avoided it for a very long time because the choice for Lindsey Graham was between testifying and telling the truth about what happened we're potentially facing an obstruction charge. And I think that, you know, I don't even know to the extent to which at this point, I don't think any of us do, his own criminal liability could be in play. But certainly if he's cooperating and testifying truthfully, that's going to play into an analysis of whether or not he's going to be a part of this indictment. So I am very It makes curious. me wonder if he was offered immunity. It makes me wonder yeah. if he pled the fifth and if she said, well, here you go, here's some immunity. Yeah, I mean, it, right it's then possible. And there. Yeah, it's quite possible that she that she might have done that if the assumption was that what he had to offer was something that would nail Donald Trump to the wall. So, you know, again, we can't know because grand jury proceedings are confidential. We're not going to get the details about that. But but what I will say is that I think that the degree to which he fought this is likely an indication of the severity of the evidence that he has against Donald Trump, because he doesn't like to sell himself out. He has done it very fractionally from time to time. And then for whatever reason, I have my own suspicions about this, has been reined back in to be a part of Trump's sycophantic crew. And so, again, I think that one of the things that we all have to hold tight to is the fact that Fonnie Willis is not dropping this. And I, we don't have any indications that she is uh, passing the buck or deciding not to continue or doing anything that would that would raise a red flag here. It's methodical. It is continuous. It has been ongoing for at least the last 18 months. I, I agree with you. I think this is the front runner right now in the context of the criminal investigations into Donald Trump. I will say, I think the civil investigation into the Trump organization, which has, you know, the potential death of the company attached to it in New York state is also something to watch because, you know, all of this is a grift to Trump. Let's be real about it. The loss of his potential business, the revelation that he's worth nothing is a part of the fear that he lives with day in and day out in the context of his malignant narcissism. But from a criminal standpoint, I think Fonnie Willis is, uh, is, is in the lead here for finishing this sooner rather than later. So, so, uh, eyes on that. And, you know, if I were Lindsay, I think that, uh, I probably wouldn't have been too happy today, but, you know, again, we'll see how this unfolds. 
Yeah, and and there could be so many other things going on that we just have no idea about. I mean, he might have been contacted by major donors saying dump Trump. He might see what's going on with the Fox News and Murdoch and the and the Republican Party being done with Trump. But he might have talked to his lawyers. He might have talked to Mitch. He might have talked to some people who were like, just tell him what happened, man. And, uh, you know, or, you know, ask for some immunity and and, and give your testimony and, and, you know, just let's get rid of him. Uh, yeah. That could could be that. Who knows? I'm just speculating. I love speculating. You know me. No, I do too. You, I always put that speculation banner over my head whenever I'm talking about it to my audience. So <laughs> totally. yeah, I mean, you know, I have to say the one thing that worries me about all of it though, just from that standpoint to touch on what you said is that I think that um, one of the things that I think we've got to be really clear on is that just because the GOP is currently willing to jettison Trump doesn't mean that the danger is over. And in fact, I'm kind of in the camp that DeSantis is in some ways a much more frightening figure than Trump is and has been because DeSantis is controlled. He is not somebody who goes off on crazy rants, right? Uh, He's reactive. There are things about him that are not appealing, to be sure, but he is a much more controlled candidate than Trump ever was. And he is also somebody who's perfectly willing to charter a plane to round up brown people and fly them elsewhere, which, by the way, is endemic of genocide. It meets the definition of genocide under the UN charter. Um, You know, we have to remember that he's already done things that are profoundly disturbing and the GOP doesn't need Trump anymore. That doesn't mean the agenda has changed. No. Right. And he is more frightening. I'm, I'm with you on that. And he he is for the party and the power of the party and himself at where we have seen Trump just throw the party under the bus and be willing to burn it all down just for him, him, him. So you're right. He's much more, you know, a, a controlled asset to the Republican autocratic, the autocratic creep that they uh, they're so desperately looking for. And that's not to say that they're not going to destroy each other. Right. I mean, part of what could happen here is that we see the DeSantis wing of the party and the Trump, the remaining Trump wing of the party just eat each other alive, which, by the way, I think will be fine for Democrats. <laughs> I don't think there's <laughs> there's a losing game in that for us. Right. Um, But I do think that, and, you know, again, this is something that Joaquin Castro pointed out when I interviewed him, and I can't wait for everybody to hear this. He did point out that, you know, they're, they're in a crisis right now. Like the GOP is in a true crisis because they are seeing that what they thought was going to happen didn't happen in the midterms. And now they've got people jettisoning Trump while simultaneously having a very far right wing of the party that isn't going to quit. And the question is, how do you reconcile those two things? And and they and they need the base, right? They need the base to win. But the but but the message that Trump is putting out there is not is not a winning message. And so, how this all shakes out in their identity crisis is going to be bloody and messy, and we're all going to get to watch it for better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to need to uh, have Biden release the strategic popcorn reserves, as someone on Twitter so astutely said. And I wanted to talk about the 11th Circuit, but we only have a minute left. Let's just say it was a bloodbath today. Uh, It it was was very, uh, very bad for them. Uh, we, We did talk a little bit about it. We touched on 
on on what went down there. But basically, Jim Trustee was making this uh, making a new argument that didn't really make any sense. And, you know, the the solicitor general's office was like, look, they keep moving the goalposts, but they have no real defense here. They can't show irreparable harm and they don't meet the first Ritchie factor, which wasn't something that the DOJ argued in their first appeal to the 11th Circuit for the classified documents. But when the 11th Circuit came back, they were like, hey, man, Chapman, it's a Fifth Circuit decision. We're the 11th Circuit. We were born from the forehead full armor from the Fifth Circuit. And uh, that means that it is binding precedent for us. So the first Ritchie factor, which means you have to prove callous disregard for constitutional rights, is dispositive. It ha- you have to meet that or the rest of them don't matter. But even if that weren't the case, you still didn't meet any of the other three either. And so I, this is open and shut to me. And like I said, I think they were just arguing how we're going to dismiss this, <laughs> not, not so much whether or not they would. Right. I mean, the moment that you knew that trustee was done was the moment when the panel started asking questions about whether you should really be referring to it as a raid. Right. Because that was the moment where it was really clear that the propagandist version of what had taken place was not going to fly in front of this panel. And that's leaving aside all the very valuable legal arguments that were being made by the solicitor general. Right. But I think that it's pretty clear here that that even on a Trump-appointed bench, there is some garbage that just stinks too much to fly. Yeah, and the, and the judges asked him several times, are you, are you here to argue that the search wasn't lawful? Because you didn't even argue that there was callous disregard for constitutional rights, so the first Ritchie factor dud it up. But if you have an argument, you haven't made it, Right. Uh, you know, that the search wasn't, well, no, not necessarily, but we need to look and we can't trust the Department of Justice and Judge Cannon agrees with us. No, 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 no. They just weren't having it. And then Judge Pryor said, well, if you're not arguing that the search was invalid or unlawful, why are we here? Yeah. And exactly. and that was boom, the nail in the coffin for me. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right after the right after he was, uh, you know, absconded for saying the word raid and then did it again and immediately apologized. It was it was a bad day for him. Yeah, I was watching Neil Catchall and, and George Conway live post this over on the brand new platform called Post. Uh, and uh, both of them were just so horrified. There was a moment where where I think it was Neil said, I don't understand why trustee just doesn't sit down. And, you know, Neil's a former solicitor general. So, you know, he's 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 been in this kind of environment many, many, many times before. So, yeah, if uh, if the former solicitor general is stunned by what the panel is doing, rest assured that the bloodbath was real. (laughs) And it was. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Everybody check out the book Becoming Heroines. It's absolutely fantastic. And of course, the amazing shows we told you they're coming up on the podcast Living Through It with Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin. I've been Allison Gill. You can find me on Twitter and all the socials. I'm on every single backup social platform at Muller She Wrote. And um, you can also listen to The Daily Beans, which you are right now. So thank you very much. Yep. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm still everywhere, but I'm not as representative on Twitter as usual, but I am on every social media platform as EC McLaughlin. So catch me there as well. Thank you for having me as always. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at newsletterwithecm.substack.com. 
And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.